All right. You have a Bible. Why don't you turn to Jonah chapter 2. The message is entitled, The Praying Prophet. We're going to look at Jonah, beginning verse 17 of chapter 1, down to chapter 2, verse 10, because that's a better break. That last verse of chapter 1 is chapter 2. The chapter and verse division is not anointed by the Lord, is not, you know, uh, by the illumination of the Spirit. It's just man facilitating so you can find things. Sometimes a, a verse or even a section is better uh, either before or afterwards, and this is just one of them. Now, Jonah has rejected his commission, rebelling against God. He's boarded a ship and headed to Tarshish, but God is pursuing his prophet. And God has sent such a fearful storm that these uh, seasoned sailors we saw last time were terrified, and even though they discovered that Jonah was the one that fall for this, running from the presence of the Lord, yet they refused to chuck him overboard. And the storm worsening moved the sailors to cast Jonah finally overboard, and they asked God's forgiveness, and God did forgive them. And, and in an odd way here, though Jonah didn't want to go to those dirty Gentiles to have them saved, God used him to save these sailors. So God saves people uh, through our lives, not because of us, but in spite of us. He honors his word above his name. Uh, so often we get enamored with the vessel, and that's the problem. The vessel um, is not it is irrelevant. Uh, we're going to see that God is going to use a fish and God used a donkey, so we all qualify. Um, now, the miracles that occurred already, the storm, the seas, and the raging of the sea, these uh, mariners uh, were fully persuaded that God was the God of heaven and earth and, and the, uh, the one they were to turn to, and they did so. And while the sailors had expressed... Um, uh, experienced salvation by the hand of God while on the ship, Jonah was experiencing preservation by the very same hand, same hand of God in the fish. God is at work. He's in control. So the second chapter, Jonah, is a psalm of praise, adoration, and thanksgiving for the deliverance of Jonah from the belly of the fish. It's the only poetical portion in the book of Jonah. Now, modern critics believe that it's not part of the original narrative and it has no part there. And of course, we understand why, because they can't accept miracles. But let me settle the question real quick. And um, it's easy to do. Jesus, the greatest authority, said that Jonah existed and he was prophetic of his resurrection. And we'll point that out as we go along. So God is not impressed with PhDs. Some of them are uh, educated beyond their intelligence, um, and that's just the way it is. Jesus destroys every objection, and if you do not believe in Jonah, then you cannot believe Jesus because you're calling him a liar. It's real simple, okay? Now, in verse 17 of chapter 1 down to 10, we're going to examine Jonah as a praying prophet. Let me pray. Oh, I'm sorry, let me read the text for us. That'd be better. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cry out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and he heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet... I will look again towards your holy temple. The water surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep uh, closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah unto dry land. And so Jonah the praying prophet is characterized by the following three things. First, the confidence in the prayer of Jonah. Verse 17, verse 1 and 2, the confidence. Secondly, we have the conflict during the prayer of Jonah from verse 3 to 7. 
And then thirdly, the cognizance of the prayer of Jonah, verse 8 through 10. He understood clearly that God was answering his prayer. Now notice we begins with the confidence in the prayer of Jonah, 17 and verse 1 and 2. In verse 17, the preparation of God for Jonah is given to us. God used the fish in Jonah so that Jonah would simply not drown. If there was no fish, he would have drowned. He wasn't an Olympic swimmer. Um, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. The fish is the third miracle that God um, uh, used. Now, the, the miracle is in that God directed the fish to rescue and preserve Jonah for three days. That's the miracle. The first was a storm, of course, in chapter 1, verse 4. The second was the sea that seized and is raging, chapter 1, verse 15. And this is the third. Now, the phrase great fish simply means a large fish. The text does not say it's a whale. Um, it just something that has been adapted, but it doesn't nearly say whale. It could be a large whale. It could be a large shark. Uh, there's records of both species being large enough to swallow an entire man. In fact, there's even records that um, some men have been swallowed, and two or three days later they found them as they were whaling. So we know that can happen. So the miracle is not that, he, that Jonah was alive or could live. The miracle was that God used the whale, directed the whale, and preserved the prophet in the whale. That's the miracle. Now, God revealed the time Jonah was in the giant fish. Notice there in verse 17 at the end. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah was in the very stomach. The word belly appears three times for clarity and for emphasis. 17, 1, and 2. Because God knows when people will read that they go, Really? Really? The size... Is no problem. If you look at the physiology of these huge mammals, there would be plenty of room, more than one person in there. Now, Jonah was there for three days. The heat, the humidity had to have been unbearable. Now, we're analyzing this real calm, under nice temperature, nice soft seats. Jonah is in the whale. You ever remember being a little kid and you went in the closet and it jammed and you couldn't get out? All right? Just a little example. He's in the animal. He knows the animal is in the ocean. He knows there's no way he can get out. His adrenaline must have been just pumping, panic-stricken. The gastric juices had to affect his body. I mean, the whale's trying to digest him. God's preserving him. Slowly, he's turning to this white, yellowish color. All the hair's falling out. The turbulent ride was, to say the least, fearful. You know, sometimes you go to a, a, a park where you have all these rides, you know, whether it be Magic Mountain or whatever, and it looks good. And then you get up and you go, oh, what did I do? You know, you're freaking out. He's in the ride of his life. Then notice Jonah is a true biblical type pointing to the anti-type, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, the three days of Jonah in the belly of this gigantic animal is... Prophetic of the descent of Jesus and his resurrection. And Jesus makes mention of that. So the true biblical type is one who is mentioned in the Old Testament prophetically and is fulfilled by the anti-type in the New Testament. They connect. There's a lot of times pastors and teachers say, well, this is a type of this, but it's not stated like that in the New Testament. There is a parallel sometimes to things, but it's not a true type. A true type has an anti-type of fulfillment. And Jesus makes that very clear. Matthew twelve thirty nine through 40 is one of them. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and no sign shall be given you except that by the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the heart of the, of, of the great fish, so will the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He was the anti-type, the fulfillment. Very, very clear. So anybody who denies Jonah, who denies this fish, denies Jesus Christ. It's real simple. They're both historical figures, type, anti-type. 
Now look at verse 1 and 2. The petition of God by Jonah is given to us. Jonah declared the statement of fact. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord Yahweh, his God, from the belly of the fish. It's a statement of fact. Like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom. No argument. We don't believe it. It doesn't matter. It's a statement of fact. Okay? You can't get away from it. The word then indicates after three days. Stubborn fellow. After he drays, he turns to the Lord. Wow. And he is freaking out in that whale. He stated that Yahweh was his God. Notice. Jonah now got right with God. Jonah was not right with God in the ship. For he said there, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land in Jonah uh, chapter 1 verse 8. But now it's his God. So Jonah has gotten right with God. He knew God was preserving him in the belly of the fish. He's very aware of this. Jonah was alive and praying. Jonah was inside this great fish. This is his testimony. Notice Jonah declared the summary statement at the beginning of the psalm rather than at the end, which is odd. Verse 2. He stated the reason for his prayer to God. He says, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. There's a summary statement at the beginning. Because he's writing it not in the whale, he's writing it after. And he's looking back. The word affliction means distress and trouble. To say the least, that's exactly what it is. The distress was the obvious, the problem of being in this great fish. Now, again, we're analyzing it all calm. Just like, you know, people, lawyers, they go to court and they analyze the shooting and they cut off frames and they manipulate it and interpret it and all that. But when you're in that firefight, it's a whole different thing. It's blood and guts. All right? A whole different matter. Notice he stated the response of God to his prayer. And he answered me. So Jonah's not lying. He got right with God. God answered him. The fact that Jonah prayed to God and he answered him means two things. He confessed, repented, and God forgave him. Otherwise, God wouldn't speak to him. The Bible is very, very clear. In uh, Psalm 66, 18, says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. Okay? God does not hear you if there's sin in your life. Real simple. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 also, and 1 John uh, um, 2, 1 and 2. Now, notice he stated God did not abandon him in his need, though. He says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice as he turned to him. God is so compassionate. Jonah compared the belly of the great fish to Sheol, the place of departed spirits, the netherworld of the dead. And this is uh, mentioned throughout the Psalms. This Psalm makes allusions to many other Psalms. I'll point some of those out. Um, Jonah was a man of the word. Some interpret this to mean that Jonah is saying that he literally died. And there are some very good Bible teachers and expositors that believe that Jonah literally died. I do not believe that is what he's saying. I believe he is completely alive, and I believe that the text proves that. But, again, like J. Burton McGee says, if you want to agree with those guys, that's fine. You'll be in good company, but if you want to be correct, you'll agree with me. Um, <laughs> Jonah affirms that God heard his voice as he prayed to him. D- do you realize how... Incredible this is and what comforting this is. That regardless of where you are, location-wise, trouble-wise, that you always have the way out to turn to God and pray. And if you repent, He hears you and He'll be there for you. Any time of the day, no matter what's going on, the non-believer doesn't have that advantage. You and I do. Ian Bounds said, He who does not pray, therefore, robs himself of God's help and places God where he cannot help man. We limit the Lord. Probably the greatest neglected and abused gift that's given to us, prayer. The scriptures tell us that prayer is not simply a tool or an avenue to get our will done or simply to get things from God. But rather, prayer is to tap into the things of God and the will of God. Um... We are to pray according to his will, 1 John 4, 
5, 14, and 15. If we ask anything according to his will, we have it. We receive it, right? The will of God is found in the word of God. Now, there are teachers that teach in the positive confession movement and, and that if you pray according to God's will, you're praying without faith. They're completely wrong. Jesus says, Father, not my will, but your will. You're in good company. God's will is the best, okay? So Copeland, Hagen, Price, and all the boys, okay? They're all wrong. Um, God's will is found in the word of God, general and specific promises that are given to us. Daniel sought the Lord uh, for the plan for Israel in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 through 3. Remember, God gave him the 70 weeks of Daniel. So prayer begins with God and ends with God. Uh, prayer is prompted by God and answered by God. You remember Moses in Exodus 32, 32, where there God was going to destroy all of Israel and uh, at the mountain. And uh, Moses says, if you can't forgive them, blot my name out of the book of life. Now listen to me, what I just said, prayer begins with God and ends with God. If that statement of Moses came from him, if he was the source, then Moses was more loving, more patient, and more kind than God. You accept that? Of course not. So God laid it in the heart of Moses so Moses can lift it to God so God can do what he wants to do. So we have our list for prayer, but when you go to prayer, you say, Lord, direct and guide me through your word and your spirit in my prayer life. The jail will be done. Wow. The scriptures tell us that prayer is a, a matter of heart posture, not a physical posture. And, you know, Jonah's upside down, sideways on his back. He's up, he's under, he's all kinds of different things. And um, the Pharisees, remember, in the were self-righteous and the public publican in Luke 18, Jesus said they went to pray and the one prayed to himself while the other uh, was justified as he prayed to God be propitious to me, a sinner. And so as the posture of the heart, how do I see myself before God? The position of the body can be on your feet, on your knees, on your back, on your face, with your hands lifted, your hands down, it doesn't matter. Um, Solomon prayed in First King at the dedication of the temple. He shows many of these postures. But if those outward postures and positions are not in line with, if the heart's not in line with them, God ignores them and in fact is insulted by them. Is that my heart is humble and broken before the Lord. Now, there is a place for you to get on your face, to be on your back if you want to do that privately. But you certainly wouldn't want to do it in a public arena. You'd be bringing attention to yourself, Right? There's nothing wrong with lifting your hands when we worship. But you start lifting your hands and swaying around and start doing the boogie, you know. There's, now you're bringing attention to yourself, right? Now, prayer keeps me from losing heart. Jesus said in Luke 18.1, Men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Reverse it. Men lose heart because they cease to pray. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, Paul says, being watchful to this end that all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Ephesians 6.18, that's the last verse of the armor of God, prayer. Prayer will open your eyes and mind. Don't trust what you see, but what God reveals to you in his word. The servant of Elijah, remember, saw the um, Syrian army around the city of Dothan, and he feared they were dead. And yet, Elisha prayed to the Lord as he told his servant Gehazi, those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And he opened his eyes, and he saw the cherubim and, the, and the, all the angels around him. Amazing. You see, the confidence in the prayer of Jonah is undeniable. He's very confident praying to the Lord. Where is he at? He's in the stinking belly of the fish. He's not sitting in a sanctuary. He's not in the temple. He's not at the Marriott. Notice, secondly, the conflict during the prayer of Jonah comes next, verse 3 through 7. In verse 3 and 4, it's an allusion to Psalm 169, verse 1 and 2. Jonah declared God was responsible for his present uh, difficulty. This is not an accusation. It's an acknowledgement. He knew God was chastising him for his rebellious disobedience. For you, 
cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. Though the sailors had reluctantly did, didn't want to throw him in in chapter 1 verse 14, but finally did, he realized it was at the hand of God. God was behind this. Jews saw the sea as a picture of chaos. The, the, the Jewish race is not known for their maritime skills. <laughs> Notice he was in panic mode here, despairing, being overwhelmed by the powerful ocean. If you've ever been out in the ocean and just taking some waves in and you get yourself in trouble, you, you, you know the panic, freaked out, things that go through your mind and heart, Okay let alone out there in the ocean in a storm. You look at some of these courageous uh, um, National Guards that jump off these choppers into 100-foot waves to save people. Insane. Jonah was not one of them. He was panic, in panic mode. And all the flood surrounded me, all your billows. In second service, I said pillows. Um, your billows and your waves passed over me. Notice what he says. He ascribes this experience directly to the sovereign hand of God. Your billows, your waves passed over me. This is the hand of God. Now, we're not told how soon the large fish swallowed Jonah. So this could be describing his time in the water Prior to being swallowed up. Maybe God allowed him to take some gulps. Even to start floating down. I don't know. But this description could equally. Be what he was experiencing. In the belly of the large fish. Now notice he at this point. Commended himself to God. Then I said. Verse 4. I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again. Towards your holy temple. Wow, things are getting brighter. Jonah is recalling his experience. Listen, then I said, he's recalling the experience. He's writing this after he's been delivered. Jonah considered himself to be rejected by God. I have been cast out of your sight. But he ran away from God, right? But he knows he's being chastised. But then Jonah professes his longing for it. Yet, I will look again towards your holy temple. So you acknowledge what's going on. You don't deny it. But you deal with it. You fix it through repentance and through seeking God and to asking God to direct and guide you. Then in verse 5 and 6, Jonah describes his miserable condition. An allusion to Psalm 169.15. He would... Um, he would every so often have the sense of anxious anticipation as the water taken in by the large fish came upon him. The water surrounded me, even to my soul. I mean, this is day in, day out, night and day. It is dark in there. He has no flashlight. The word soul, nefesh, speaks of his person, not just a physical body, as to say in the New Testament, even to my spirit, the real him. The idea is Jonah thought he was going to die. Now, very few of us will ever experience something like that. But some of us have. I've experienced it a couple of times. Men at war certainly do. And when you feel you're going to die. Things happen to your mind and your heart and everything else. It, it is weird. And he would then be gripped with the sense of hopelessness. Verse 5 says, The deep clothes around me, weeds were wrapped around my head. Now it's dark. You know, things get, you know, you ever walk in the, out in the garage, some of you ladies, and you get a cobweb, you get all freaked out, you don't know what it is. It's dark. It's hot. It's humid. He's going all over the place. Frightful. Yet he was very aware of the deep descent of the fish by being aware of the length of time, the forward and down motion as he continued. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. 
And you get on a ride in Disneyland or Magic Mountain, you know when you're going down, you know when you're going up, you know when you're going around. But notice what it does to you too. You ever out at sea? And you get off on port, you have sea legs. You're still on the water for a couple of days. Some even get affected with vertigo for a long time. You can imagine. And so it's interesting to me that he speaks about mountains in the sea, yet he didn't have no periscope. There was no windows on the sea monster. <laughs> well, Isaiah says that God made the, the, the earth circular and he hung it on nothing. They didn't have no telescopes back then. God's revelation. The moorings mean the bottom or base of the mountains. I mean, he knows he's going down. Now, he paid his fare and went down to the bottom of the ship, but now the fish is taken to the bottom of the ocean. I had the privilege of getting on the USS Los Angeles nuclear sub with my son years back, and we went down about 700 feet. We were out for about half a day. It's quite an experience. But to be in, 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 a, in, a, in a sea monster, whether it be a shark or a whale, that's quite a different matter. Um, he had concluded his death was certain. Listen to verse 6 there in the middle. Uh, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. In other words, Jonah describes very picturesque the depth of the descent and beyond the point of no return, the earth with its bars closing behind him forever. Kind of like being locked up and you hear the slamming of that cell door. Whomp. Bars. Jonah was not expecting to survive at this point. Now you may find yourself in a situation where you say, I can't take it no more. This is it. Whatever your situation may be, then you need to turn to God. God wants to do a great work in your life. He then, all of a sudden, as he's sure he's going to die, he was delivered. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And so Jonah is looking back and recounting the experience and crediting God for the persevering of his life by having this large fish. Reverse his direction up to the surface, yet you have brought up my life. So he credits God from bringing him up as he is directing the fish. But it's God who one who brings him up. Jonah compared this to coming up from the pit, meaning the grave, the place of the dead, shield, the grave. He vocalizes personal relationship with God. Oh, Lord, Yahweh, my God. Remember Philip? I won't believe unless I see his prince in his sight. My Lord and my God. He's in relationship now. And sometimes God, to keep us from running, he will put us in the belly of the storm. Look at 7. Jonah depicted his experience as one having to be completely dependent on God. Don't miss that. This is key. The condition of Jonah was life-threatening. When my soul fainted within me, throughout the three days, every time he experienced that distressful, this, this hopeless, believing feeling that he was going to die, sometimes he'd pass out, then he'd wake up. Wow. So this was not pie in the sky. This is a, a frightful experience. But a, Needful experience. Notice the response of Jonah was to turn to God. Good decision. I remembered the Lord Yahweh. The covenant God of Israel who called him to be a prophet in chapter 1 verse 1. The covenant God who commanded him to go to Nineveh to preach against their wickedness in chapter 1 verse 2. You ever read Psalm 139? 7 through 9 it says... Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. And I've told you often, Satan doesn't run hell. Jesus does. Okay? Jesus runs hell. Not Satan. All right? 
He's going to end up in the, in, the, in the lake of fire. So if I go to hell, you're there. Um, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You think Jonah was thinking of the psalm? I believe them. So he was a man of the word. The only provision Jonah had was, are you ready? Prayer. That's it. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. He had no other recourse but to look to God in his appeal. Now, God didn't force him. But here, the right recourse was to turn him and he did so. He had been put in a position by God that removed every human help. You and I have gone through things like that if you walk with God for many years. Money is not going to fix the problem. Other people are not going to fix the problem. Nothing or no one or no thing is going to fix the problem. It's you and God and nobody or nothing else. And you're going to have to walk with God and go through that storm. Sometimes on your back, sometimes on your face, sometimes on all fours. And that is a great time. Because when you get done, you'll be less like you and more like him. Listen to E.M. Bounds. He said this about prayer in the church and it's applicable to every individual. When the church is in the condition of prayer, God's cause always flourishes and his kingdom on earth always triumphs. When the church fails to pray, God's cause decays and evil of every kind prevails. A prayerless pastor, church, and Christian are denying God's ability to direct and provide man's privilege to ask and receive. We're just stubborn. We're self-sufficient. We just think that we can do it a little better. We don't say it directly, but we do it by our actions. I'm in control, God. I've got it wired. Don't worry about it. I'm not worrying. Sometimes a person is in sin and God uses extreme measures that they might repent. Like Jonah being put in the belly of this great fish. Sometimes removing a job from a person. Removing a wife or a husband or a family. Or even your health or even life. But every step, the Lord Jesus is desiring that person to turn to him and to pray that they might repent and get right with him. That's the whole goal. You as a parent, when you're dealing with your child, when they're out of sorts, your whole goal is to For them to get right so you can bless them, so you can be joyous with them, so you can be in fellowship with them, so you can enjoy one another. As a child being immature or young person, of course, the perspective is trying to run my life. You're trying to control me. You don't know. You're trying to make me miserable. From your perspective, shut up. (laughs) You know better, right? Proverbs 29.1 says, He who is often rebuked and hardens his, his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Ooh. That's an incredible verse. At other times, a person is going through difficult times in marriage, gripped with fear, anger, and hopeless despair like Jonah in the belly of the whale. It is just blood and guts. It's just not fun. It's just not comfortable. It's just horrible. When marriage is good, it's good. When it's bad, it is bad. And it's always due to the disobedience of one or both, husband and wife. The bad situation will get worse and more critical until there is a calling upon God to repent and forgive him. And then humbling ourselves, even as the scriptures, Jesus says, if you fall upon this rock, you will be broken. But if the rock falls upon you, you will be crushed. That's a choice, by the way. During these um, unbearable times, prayer is the most powerful tool we have as we um, remain obedient to God. 
not trusting our emotions and the situation or the difficulty, but what God is doing in me. And some of you who are single, it's important that you be yielding to the Lord and seeking Him, that you not be looking for the right person to marry, but that you be working hard to be the right person so when God brings you that person. You see, you put God first, that you become more like Jesus, so you can be a blessing to the person that's brought to you, not just look at the person, how they're going to bless you. The teaching is carnal today. Christian young groups are no better than the world. You think Paul had young groups to date, to hook up? Carnal. Now, Paul puts it this way: Philippians four six through eight, six through seven. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is where you've committed yourself to the Lord, like Jonah here. This is regardless of the situation; it hasn't changed. Things are still bad. My feelings: I don't feel good. Doesn't matter. What's the first thing the sociologist, the psychologist said? How do you feel? I could care less how you feel. My question to you is, how are you doing with God? It's not how you feel. You think I feel good all the time? You think I'm just excited to come out and greet you guys? We walk by faith, not by sight. We do what we have to, knowing God is on control. And obedience to Him, knowing that I am here, that God may use my gift for you. And that you're coming to see how God's going to use you to bless others. But whatever the situation may be, whether sin, temptation, or testing, the Lord Jesus wants you to seek Him and to obey Him in and through the conflict. Regardless of how uncomfortable it is. The Lord Jesus is always desiring to forgive and to bless his children. So again, not by sight, not by emotions, but by faith. No matter how bad a situation is, God will and can turn it for good to the obedience of a Christian. It doesn't mean that you can go out and sin and God is going to... No, you still may have to live with the consequences. Without doubt. But still, he will use it for his glory to make you more like him. But not that he uses your bad witness that you blew. No. That's ridiculous. Second Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man perishing. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction. Light affliction, Paul says. Consider who's saying this. Which is, but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, which, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things that are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporal, the things that are not seen are eternal. Second Corinthians 4, 16-18. That's the perspective of a Christian. The conflict during the prayer of Jonah was unbearable. But he was praying to God. The circumstance had not changed right away. Notice thirdly, the cognizance of the prayer of Jonah was demonstrated here. He understood that his prayer was answered. Notice verse 8, Jonah declared the ruin of those who worship idols. Now, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. The verse... um, Almost seems out of place, yet it is very relevant to the narrative. Jonah thought himself superior to the Ninevites, the Gentile idolaters. Jonah knew very well that they worshipped idols. And though Jonah had called on God and repented to experience the grace and the mercy of God, he still was not altogether convinced that the Ninevites should have that privilege. He was hoping they didn't. And chapter 3 and 4 will still reveal that to us, okay? So, and it's not that Jonah had fooled God or that God was ignorant to 
his half-hearted repentance, but God is very patient, long-suffering. Let me give you the best illustration. You ready? You. You don't have to go any further. So be careful what you say about Jonah. Jonah was declaring an absolute biblical truth. Listen. Because the practice of idolatry is worthless. A worthless thing. The word worthless means vain, empty, falsehood. It's an attempt to make an image of God or a God in a physical manner to give confidence and hope in front of the presence. Uh, the problem is that God is spirit. He doesn't have a physical body. And Jesus took on a body simply for the atonement. But um, uh, he has no body as, as God. And so all of us who came out from uh, Catholicism can identify with idolatry, with our saints and our virgins, our scapular and, our, and the rosary and all that. It's worthless idols. It has nothing to do with our relationship with God. Idolatry is the worship of nature or creation rather than the creator, Romans 1 tells us. It's abominable. There's only one meter between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, First Timothy 2.5. Only one name under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, John 14.6. God is very narrow when it comes to getting into heaven. And who it is that you speak as a mediator. Idolatry is this the sin of witchcraft we're going to see. And demons are behind idols, Paul says in Corinthians. Wow. Notice the consequence of practicing idolatry is that a person forsakes his own mercy. Mercy is less than we deserve. Grace is what we don't deserve. Law is exactly what we deserve. What do you want? You want, you want, you want law? You don't want to get what you deserve. You'll never make it. I want grace. Now, if I want grace, I have to give grace to everybody else. That's the rule. The word mercy here, hesed, is a covenant word. It could be translated, and it's better translated, loving kindness, implying the goodness and the faithfulness of God to his people. Notice in verse 9, Jonah described his devotion to worship God in giving thanks. He would, in contrast to idolaters, do this with an offering. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. So the blood of the animal would make the provisions for his atonement and access to God. And the gratitude would be for delivering Jonah from the belly of the great fish. This is why he's giving him thanks. So he already knew at this point. And he would make a vow. I will pay what I have vowed. Probably that he would go to Nineveh and preach. But as we have pointed out in the next two chapters, it reveals that he kept the vow to go, but his heart was not in it. If Jonah's heart was in one thing, it was this, I hope they don't repent. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And then there was a smile. Hard not to crack. Wow. He acknowledged God's alone saves. Salvation is of the Lord Yahweh. As an Israelite, he knew that salvation came only through the covenant God, Yahweh. As a prophet, he was affirming it through his rescue and deliverance by Yahweh. Great theological truths, but if they don't apply to everybody, if they're not lived out, they're worthless. Notice verse 10. Jonah depicted the response of God to the prayer of Jonah. God communicated with the gigantic fish. So the Lord Yahweh spoke to the fish. <laughs> Interesting, huh? God took Jonah at his word. God knew Jonah had not repented wholeheartedly. God gave Jonah, listen, a second chance. Aren't you glad he's giving you a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth? Hmm. The gigantic fish obeyed God. Wow, what a miracle. That's right. And it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Just as God used Balaam's donkey to speak through, he used this sea monster, if you will, to get Jonah where he wanted him to go. 
The hurling of Jonah must have been an incredible sight as well as with great force as he landed on the sand. As some of these whales have a five, six opening, they just spit whatever is lodged or whatever and it just goes. Probably near Joppa, they weren't too far off the coast, they were trying to make their way back. And you can imagine the shock to the people who saw Jonah first as he's whitish yellow, bald. You remember that um, the Ninevites are idols, idolaters. One of their gods is Dagon, the fish god. <laughs> Interesting. You remember Daniel declared that he knew God had answered his prayer regarding the great image that he revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 2.23, he says, I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. Daniel and his friends, they were the first to know that God answered their prayer. You are the first to know. I am the first to know when God answers my prayer. No one else can know that but me. Therefore, when I say God answers my prayer, I am responsible whether I am truthful or fraudulent. One of the two. Our perspective towards unbelievers should be completely different than Jonah. We shouldn't hope that people not come to the Lord. We should pray that people come to the Lord and be saved. Because people are spiritually lost, spiritually blind, and spiritually dead. I just attended a funeral for one of my friends that was two years younger. Saturday, Trudy and I went, and you guys remember my good friend Joey Hernandez got saved three years ago after 40 years of drugs. And uh, I was looking for him. I didn't see him there. And then as I left after an hour and a half, I heard so much grieving junk over the pulpit. I'm not talking about vulgarity, but just the, the dumb things you say about life and death at funerals when you don't know God. And as I was walking, I saw Joey, so I gave him a hug and other people. And uh, I didn't get a chance to talk to him, but I called him last night when I took my mom home to her house because she has dementia. And, um, and I called Joey, and I, hey, Joey, how you doing? He goes, fine. He says, I, I said, man, was that grievous or what? He says, brother, it was dark. I left right after you. It doesn't mean that you think you're better, but it's such a hopeless circle an environment that people live in that aggrieves your heart, especially because many of them know about God. They know what God has done in many of our lives, and yet you can't force them. Romans ten twelve says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone. Anywhere. Under any circumstances. Wow. If you and I were God, we would exclude many, many people. We have to be truthful. We can make great sacrifice for the Lord Jesus, make vows, thank him for all he has done in our lives. And that he alone saves, and those are great truths. But if we're not willing to live them out, they are meaningless. God is not pleased with sacrifices and vows. In fact, he doesn't even require them. God's desire is that each of us merely obey his word and walk with him personally to do his will. You remember when Samuel faced Saul after he uh, disobeyed and he saved King Agag of the Amalekites and some of the animals. Listen to what he told him in 1 Samuel fifteen twenty three. He says, for rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. Now, 
Do you think God was not patient enough with Saul? Do you believe this is God's failure? I don't think so. What a stern and dangerous warning. Like the sin of witchcraft, iniquity, idolatry. Hmm. God is and will be very merciful to all of us throughout our lives. And the majority of us have already been recipients of such great mercy and grace. He knows we are but dust. He knows that we are but weak and frail. And he knows all that is in our heart. And yet he will use us for his glory. Amazing, amazing God that we have. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God, not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despaired. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. J.B. Phillips' paraphrase says, not knocked out. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in ours. If the glory of God was manifested through the body of this large animal, how much more should it be so through these vessels? Constantly. The cognizance of the prayer of Jonah is unmistakable. Here you have the praying prophet. Characterized by these three things. And you thought it was just a fish story. The confidence in prayer of Jonah is undeniable. The conflict during the prayer of Jonah was unbearable. And the cognizance of the prayer of Jonah was unmistakable. Are you in the well? And you need to turn to God. You might be the sailor on the ship. You need to turn to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your love and your goodness. And we thank you for just your word and your patience with us, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that even now as those that are here that do not know you, Lord, that they would call on your name. That you might save them over the internet, Lord. If you're here and you fit that bill, you don't know the Lord. Then God extends his grace and love to you. That if you will believe that he died and rose from the dead to pay the price of your sin, you can call upon him and you will be saved by grace through faith. So if that's your decision, right where you sit, this prayer is a prayer of repentance to ask Jesus to save you. He alone knows if your heart is sincere or not. I'm not the important one. That's why I don't have you come up. It doesn't matter to me. It's up to you. You play games, you play games. You come to the Lord, you'll be blessed. This is your prayer of repentance. You can repeat it right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.